1: Hey everybody, today's guest is songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Holly Knight from Los Angeles, California. She is a song doctor, hit maker to the stars, and her discography of Grammy award-winning singles is beyond impressive. Together we get the inside scoop behind the writing and inspiration for the 1983 smash hit, Love is a Battlefield, written by Holly and Mike Chapman and made famous by Pat Benatar. Holly has written songs for Tina Turner, Rod Stewart, Kiss, Bonnie Tyler, Meatloaf, Scandal, John Waite, and Less Than Jake. That's right, I co-wrote the Less Than Jake song Overrated with Holly back in 2005 for our album, In With The Out Crowd. Holly was as feisty as ever today, telling it exactly how it is when it comes to the songwriting process. How she worked her way up 40 years ago and gained the respect and admiration of her peers in a male-dominated business. I asked her if she ever wrote a song, handed it off to an artist, and then was disappointed when she heard their version. Her answer was a resounding yes, and I was floored by the song she singled out. I did not see that one coming. And she tells of an important distinction between being a songwriter and a musician in a way I've never quite heard explained before. So get out your lyric pad, acoustic guitar, and sit down at the piano. This is a good one. Hey, hey, have you heard Kristen? A podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Chris makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Chris makes a podcast. Hey, hey,
2: have you heard? Chris makes a podcast.
1: Well, hello, Holly, how are you?
2: I'm great. Hi, Chris. How are you?
1: I am awesome. You know, it's it's been uh, it's been a hot minute. And and for the listeners, Holly Knight has written a ton of amazing, great songs, hit singles. I worked with Holly in 2005. Uh, Holly co-wrote uh, "Overrated" with Less Than Jake. So And when I found out that you were interested in, in co-writing with us, I was over the moon. I, I you know. You wrote so many songs from my childhood. And the one thing when I was researching this episode that really got me that I didn't know until yesterday, you played on one of my favorite Kiss records, Unmasked, which is an unpopular opinion. That's when they kind of went pop in the early 80s. But there's some gems on that record. I had no idea (laughs) that you played keyboards on Unmasked.
2: That's right. Um, It wasn't anything planned either. Uh, It just sort of happened to be in the right place at the right time. And we had the same manager. And what's Started out as one song, turned into the whole record. Um, once they heard me play, and they decided that they wanted to do something different and have a record with keyboards on them because they hadn't done that before. And I think a lot of people loved it, and I think probably more people hated it because you know they're a <laughs> guitar-driven band. But I give them a lot of credit for you know giving me a chance. I was an unknown. They didn't know it at the time, but I'd never recorded on a record before and uh, even the fact that i was a woman i thought that was pretty evolved especially given the fact that they were known for you know they were known as womenizers so the fact that they gave me a chance um was phenomenal
1: yeah well now was this prior because you performed in spider and device uh both pop groups was this prior to spider and device this uh, when you when you hooked up with kiss
2: it was definitely before device and it was before i you know, established myself or started writing songs, um, but it was right before Spider. So Spider had the same manager, Bill Coin, and um, mm-hmm. Anton, the drummer, had ghosted on uh, the Dynasty record because... When they were doing their solo records before that, Ace hired Anton to play the drums because he heard him on a demo on a demo of a song someone had submitted a song. It wasn't me, and it was our guitarist uh, and Spider, and he wanted to play a song to Ace, and that connection happened because they're all South African. And Eddie Kramer, who had produced Kiss and Jimi Hendrix and all this other amazing, you know, all these other amazing artists. Uh, they kind of bonded. They had that sort of expatriate thing going.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: once Ace heard Anton, he ended up playing on his solo record, which led to us meeting Bill O'Coin because I had the group Spider. But we haven't made a record yet. So technically, the first record I ever played on was Kiss Unmasked.
1: And, you know, your <laughs> your list of songs that you've co-wrote is, is amazing. I'm going to go through a couple of them here. Uh, Ragdoll by Aerosmith.
0: Ragdoll, live an animal. It,
1: cutie? So- Obsession by Anna Motion.
0: You are an You're my Who do you-
1: Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, the Best uh, Bonnie Tyler, which was later renamed Simply the Best and became a number one hit for Tina Turner.
0: You're sampling.
1: Invincible, Pat Benatar as well.
0: Anime, it's a we will be
1: better Be Good to Me, Tina Turner. The Warrior Scandal. just amazing these were these were songs that I grew up in my childhood such a, a part of the 80s Changed John Waite and you know you were talking about Bill O'Coin uh, whom had managed Kiss in their heyday you, you mentioned anti Fig with Ace Freely and how everything kind of blended together here you also co-wrote Hide Your Heart which Kiss did Ace also did Robin Beck did and Molly Hatchet which <laughs> it's amazing it never became a big hit for any of them but I love that song yeah!
2: Thank you. I know. I think that song's been covered more than any other song I've written. It's crazy. It's unreal. Yeah, um, yeah. I've written. Actually, they've uh, over time. I wrote some more. I mean, I wrote a couple of songs with Paul Stanley on um, Psycho Circus, and then I wrote a, a co-wrote a song with him for his solo record. And and oh, and also by the way, I just wanted to clarify something. When Tina recorded. Um, the best it wasn't renamed simply the best but everybody seems to know it that way that's sort of they've kind of coined that title it's still the best oh it is Um, okay yeah okay i think the two words say the more you can't really top that you know the best (laughs) comes after that uh, but we did rewrite this we had to write a bridge for that song after it had already come out which is kind of unique so
1: i had read uh, a quote from desmond child uh years ago and desmond's another songwriter to the stars song doctor whatever you want to refer to people that are that are outside writers from bands and 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 someone had asked him you know does it bother you that that you're not the face that you're not known uh and and he said no, as long as my name's on the publishing form and and I I see those zeros after uh, on the check, he he said I'm happy. And for you, of course, you know you played in Spider. Device had uh, it seems a little more success than Spider. You, you know, you guys yeah. were out there doing a little bit more. At what point for you did you realize? Okay, I have a knack for songwriting. I can do this, and it may not be you know me on the cover of the record, and I'm fine with that.
2: Well, I left Spider after two records and you know, I was already sort of being noticed, I, you know, I wasn't even really a songwriter until I joined that band. I mean, i had been playing keyboard since I was four, and I was sort of heading in a classical concert pianist kind of direction. Uh, and then I discovered rock, and, you know, so um, that changed, it was a game changer. And then um, I thought of myself as a musician for the longest time. And then when I joined Spider, you know, they were kind of writing songs that were Fairly mediocre. I mean, they were great musically. They were, it was kind of like prog rock, but they weren't the kind of songs that were gonna get on the radio. And I knew that that was the way in. Um, so I thought, what the hell? I'll start writing. And as it turned out, I was. I had a talent for it, you know. So every time we would submit songs for record, they would pick mine as the singles, and they didn't know who wrote what. It was totally unbiased. So when I decided to leave after the second record, due to you know conflicts with The singer, pretty much, Mike Chapman, who had we had signed his record record label. um, I'd already written Better Be Good with to me with him for Spider, and you know he just he he said come out to California and be. Why don't you try writing songs for a living? It's not a bad it's not a bad gig, and songwriters Mm -hmm. are considered you know royalty in the music business and you'll get to work with lots of people. And I mean, he just made it sound so appealing. I just jumped at it and I moved to California. And so already at that point, I thought, I'm gonna be a songwriter, but it was really only after I had experienced a few sort of epiphanies that I knew that I had picked the right, the right career. And personally for myself, other than performing live, which I still love to do, and I miss it terribly, I'm totally fine being a songwriter. I hated doing the photo sessions. I hated all the other <laughs> <Me> crap. <too. laughs> right? I mean, just the pressure of it. And, and you know, having to look good in this day and age. I mean, once MTV exploded, it was it's so much emphasis. I mean, you know, the Buggles, yeah, they had it totally right when they said that video killed the radio star. And I kind of liked having the anonymity. I mean, as long as, as exactly what Desmond said, who... By the way, is a good friend of mine. He used to open up for Spider, and awesome. (laughs) Yeah, and we've written together and stuff. We haven't written a lot together, but the last thing we wrote was uh, the Meatloaf record. May rest in peace. Out of Hell three. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago.
1: That's very cool. Well, was there was there. You know, I noticed a lot, uh, you know, and I, I had seen your name. I, I was one of those guys, and I guess that's why I have a songwriting podcast. I used to read the liner notes and who wrote this and who wrote what, and I knew of you your too. name. You
2: too, I missed that.
1: Yeah, I I, I I knew where it was recorded, who the second engineer was, who the, who was the tape machine guy. I mean, I knew I knew it all. The A&R person, it just intrigued me. And, of course, I saw your name back then. I saw the Jim Valance's, the Marty Fredrickson's, the Desmond Child's. Was there competition with you back then, or did you guys all come Kind of seemed to 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 work together how, how was that process back then
2: i think it was somewhere in the middle i think it was like friendly competition like we would write together and when we you know when we weren't busy competing with each other if that <laughs> makes sense yeah and uh and, and it was interesting because at that time i was the only woman so on the one hand, that was kind of lonely, but on the other hand, I loved it because it helped. It just gave me another edge to stick out as being different, you know. But I always grew up sort of being one of the boys in, in a way, so I liked that. And, and, and also the fact that I, you know, I had skills as a musician. You know, if I walked in a room, I pretty much would, they'd be talking. I'd sit down and start playing, and they would shut up <laughs> after that, you know. And then that was in the beginning when I didn't really have much of a name or a track record, you know.
1: Now, you had mentioned working with Mike Chapman. And was he the producer for Spider? Is that how you met him?
2: Well, I wanted him to produce us. And as it turned out, we ended up signing to his record label. And he didn't produce us because he had other commitments. Um, He had signed other contracts to do other things, you know, like Blondie. He had to do the follow-up Blondie record just at the time he wanted us to do records. So we worked with his engineer that he had worked with for years. Peter Coleman, who also did a lot of the tracks on the first Benatar record. But I was still pissed off because I really, really wanted to work with him. So when the second record came around, he still couldn't do us. And I was like, okay, this is annoying. So by the time we were getting towards the end of the record, I really felt like we had songs, but we didn't have the, the, the really big songs. So I kind of went behind the band's back because I knew they, would, they wouldn't they would want me to do it. And I thought it was the smartest thing we could do because I thought if I could get him to write a song with me, then maybe i could talk him into producing it and that's exactly what happened he was very receptive we wrote we wrote better be good to me
1: well that's what i wanted to that's why i brought up mike so when you wrote better be good to me Was that how most of your songs, did you kind of have them stockpiled? Because I know when I worked with you, you didn't bring less than Jake a song like, hey, I think you should record this. We collaborated on an idea together. Were most of your stuff collaborations in a room like like you and I did? Or was it, hey, I got this great song. We should send it to Tina Turner and see if she wants to record it.
2: Um, No, uh, either I wrote it alone. Like I wrote one of the living for Tina because they came to me, me and they said she's doing a movie and it was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And I just knew I could write that song on my own. I knew what I already heard it in my head and everything. But um, I also like collaborating if it's with the right person. And, you know, looking back now on my career, there's really only about three or four people that I really had mad chem- really mad chemistry with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times the labels would send an artist over or a band over. And more often than not, that was like songwriting 101. And like I had to sort of carry the weight and... It's kind of. It was a little frustrating because, um, you know, it's like you could be the world's greatest tennis player, but if you're shooting balls at someone and they don't hit them back, you play the worst game of your life. <laughs> and so when I was writing with people, they'd be sitting there on the phone or texting or, you know, well, that was later. But even in the beginning, it was, you know, it was hard to, to, to know if I was writing something that they could get into. And then there were the times, like with Rod Stewart or the Divinals, where I had an idea. They loved it. I invited them to write it with me. All they did was fuck around, and I ended up saying, I really had the balls to say this to Rod Stewart. I said, "Um, you know, we're not getting anywhere, and I know you love this song, but let me finish it on my own, and if you're smart, you'll record it. And he did. He (laughs) had a hit with it. I mean, I look back now, like, where did I get the balls to say that, Rod like, Stewart, and he didn't give a shit. So he was like, okay, great, you yeah.
0: know.
1: working with you when I found out you know I, I had written during that time period that was the only time I, I, I co-wrote with outside writers it was uh yeah, and that uh, must have sh- been weird sh-
2: right I mean I'm sure it's weird I've been in a band, so I know what that feels it, like it, it,
1: it was I think it was weird I, I know it was weird for some guys in my band and they
2: weren't in the room that's why
1: well we, we came right? from a punk background okay and if you yeah. didn't do it all yourself you were sellouts and that whole thing and my whole position was you know, I haven't had a hit and these people have, and I just wanted to learn. I wanted to soak it up. I wanted to write a song with someone that was in the same room as Paul Stanley. You know, like I, I, I looked forward to working with you. I worked with Butch Walker, Shelly Piken. Uh, there, there was a couple, couple other people during that session. And to me, it was okay. If we don't have a hit, it's not going to matter. They're not they can't cry sell out. And if we do have a hit and it blows up, those people aren't going to matter either. (laughs) So it
2: was a win. It was a win win. I'll add one thing to that, which is is a a pill I've had to swallow my whole career. And that is that nobody gives a shit who wrote it. I mean, they assume that the artist wrote it. People, especially now, you can't even, I mean, then they made it easier because you had to print the name on the vinyl record, or you had to print it in the book of the CD, but now that it's streaming, nobody knows who does what, and the artist gets all the credit, and, and as you know, it takes more than a village to make that artist sound and mm-hmm. look, and, and, and it's a thankless job, I wouldn't want to be a songwriter starting out right now.
1: What I loved about it was is, is you invited me uh, and Vinnie, our drummer, out to your home, and we went into your home studio. Yeah, I'm still still we'll,
2: living in the same place, too.
1: Yeah, beautiful home. We got there, we get in your studio, and uh, I remember you, you you had a cup of coffee. You were as cool as a cucumber, just calm. You said, what's going on? And we just started working on Overrated, and you bust out the piano. And there's the post-chorus of that song, the "Whoa" oh part. After the G, you went to a G sharp that I never would have went to. And I remember just sitting there going, Wow, that's that's something I would never do. And it was at that moment that I was like, this is why I'm doing this. It's not that I'm a bad songwriter, I can't write my own stuff, but I put myself into a box. I know what chord I'm going to go to to the bridge. It's my go-to every time, or I know what harmony I'm going to use here. And that's what I want to ask you, too, is did you ever feel stifled or you're kind of in the holly box and you have to get out of that? And, And how did you do that as a songwriter? How did you push yourself?
2: Well, I've always thought outside the box. So for me, that's my norm, you know. That's like a friend of mine said to me once, you know, I can never tell when you smoke pot. I can never tell that you're high. You don't act high. And I said, that's because (laughs) I'm high all the time. (laughs) Oh, God. So um, I don't know. I, I do try and change it up on the bass lines. Like if there's an obvious note, like the root note, let's say you have a C chord. The obvious root note is to go to C. But if you go to, say, E or G instead, or you go to something like B, you change it up a little bit. Just that alone, you know, has been one of those things that I always try to do. Or if the chords are very simple, I mean, I have songs that have two chords in them that were hits like Obsession and Better Be Good to Me. Pretty much yeah. those two chords. But, it, you know, the simpler the track is, the more you can step outside the box as a singer. And really, let's face it, when people walk out of the arena, they're not singing the bass line or the drums, they're singing the melody. So the melody very has true. to have a lot of room to move so if you have like a you know you get into some of these heavy prog bands like Tool which I have utmost respect for um, but the thing is they have very concise you know time signatures and their musical chords and all that that you really have to follow them it's very hard to write a melody that's independent of that so you're you of put into a box of what you can write whereas if you have a very simple background you could pretty much write anything on it and I always felt that like the most important thing at the end of the day is to write some lyrics that you're proud of, that you're never going to, that they're never going to be cringeworthy. And I think we've all done that. I've certainly done that, but nobody's going to ever hopefully hear the songs, you know, Mm
1: -hmm. I
2: think that a lot of care needs to go into, you know, into writing good lyrics.
1: You know, I've, been, you know, Less Jake never had huge radio success, but I have walked into a, a restaurant or, or a bar and, and our song's been on. And I know what that makes me feel like. But to this day, the songs that you've, you've written are, are everywhere. I mean, uh, you know, the, the best was featured in, in Joe Biden's victory speech <laughs> for the election. I mean, these songs be. are uh, yeah, these songs have been in, in, in Thelma and Louise, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, The Simpsons, 30 Rock South Park. You've had uh, Shits Creek, uh, the best being performed by one of the main characters. I mean, they're all over. What does that feel like to, for you to, to walk into a mall and love is a battlefield is on?
2: You know, it's a private moment for me where part of me wants to scream at everybody. That's my song. You know, even, <laughs> even now, it's like I get so excited about it. Or I'm, they tend to be in like, you know, I'll be walking in Ralph's or something and they have like this sort of they probably buy a blanket of songs from the 80s and, you know, a song will come on. But. I can't do that because I'd look like an asshole, or 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 they or something. I've actually tried it once or twice in the past, where they look at me like you're full of shit, or who cares, like they just look at me like whatever. So it's a private moment where I smile to myself, or I'll turn on the TV, and some show come on, come on right away, and I just keep doing what I'm doing, but smiling inwardly, like this is so cool, this is so cool. I feel like I've been able to make a significant mark. And that's important to me, you know. Yeah. yeah, well,
1: you well you, you have made a mark, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the show. Because again, I've had, I've only had artists on here, uh, you know, that have been the songwriters that they're in the band for the right. songs, and you're out, you're outside of that, and it's you're a songwriter. You're just as we said before, you're maybe not the face, but you wrote that song, and that's why I wanted to ask you that what that what that feeling invokes for you when you when you hear it, and it's uh, you're proud, and 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 that's uh, that that's how it should feel. I want to go back and talk about love as a battlefield. So you you co-wrote this with Mike Chapman, and did you do the music and the lyrics together?
2: Yes, um, we did, very much so. Um, that we That's pretty much how Mike and I worked. And it's funny because we, would, we, we could be in a room, in those days, nobody had fancy home studios. He just always had the budgets, he would go in these big studios. So if he was writing, he would sit down with just a guitar or whatever. So our writing room was his living room. And it just looked like anybody's living room. You wouldn't even know that two songwriters were about to write in there. But he did have these two speakers that were called Uris, and they're the kind of speakers that if you know, if you've, anybody listening has ever been in a studio, they are massive. They're the kind that are up by the uh, ceiling and the plate glass window looking into the control room. They're flushed, and, and they're gigantic, and they're fucking loud. <laughs> They're like as professional and as loud as you could get. And he had those. I mean, you could probably crawl inside those those things. So <laughs> we didn't have much equipment. You know, we had a guitar and an amp. And uh, we played everything through those big speakers. And it was just magical with us. We barely looked at each other. But every now and then at some perfect moment, we would turn and look at each other and maybe even wink if we knew we were onto something good. And that was kind of like what happened that day. I had just moved to California, and this was... This was like the second or third time I think I'd written, I wrote a song with him for ABBA, for the, the blonde singer in ABBA, Agneta. Yeah, this was like, I can't remember it was so long ago. It was either the second or the third song we wrote. And um, we had gotten, I had just moved to California, we'd gotten that together that day to just write. We didn't have anyone in mind, we just thought, let's just write some great songs. But I always find that when we have something, even especially now, I mean, that's the only way I, I like to work now, is I have to have something specific to write for because otherwise I'm writing a great tune, but no one's ever going to hear it. And I can't tell you how many killer songs I have sitting around that Um, I'm still pushing them and waiting for someone to cut them because they're some of my best work you know but that day we were just gonna write for the hell of it and the phone rang and Mike's talking to this person I don't know who the hell he's talking to but he's laughing clearly he knows this person and then I hear him say sweetheart so I figured okay he's talking to a woman Um, and they're just laughing and then I hear him mention my name he goes yeah I'm I got together with holly knight yeah she wrote change for john wait yeah she signed to me we we were going to write today so we'll write something for you and as soon as i heard my name i was like okay who the fuck is he talking to now i'm like really (laughs) sitting up and paying attention and then when he hung up i said who was that and he said it was pat benatar and she had asked him to write a song because they were doing a live record and they needed a single to sell the uh the record
1: which the live record was not great. Live from Earth, I
2: had it. No, and you know what? Not <laughs> only that, it's terrible. not only that, it was bad because like when you have a song on um, a live record, it's kind of like thrown in there. Whereas if you have a song on a studio record with a bunch of hits, you really stand a chance. I mean, that song did really sell. It did really, really help that record sell.
1: Back then, if you had a studio track attached to a live record, it was a throwaway. It was a B-side. It was something extra. They didn't have enough live tracks to put in the album. We'll we'll throw the fans a bone. And In this case, it was like her biggest
2: hit. I know. I know. That's funny. So we wrote the song that day, except for one line. And it wasn't that we couldn't, it was on the chorus, and it wasn't that we couldn't think of a line. We thought of about a hundred. We just, you know, as I then found out, Mike was a total perfectionist. I mean, he was my mentor for many, many years. And we're still great, great friends. And we keep talking about getting together and writing again, but he lives in London and I live in LA. So, but um, we certainly had a huge impact on each other in our lives. We wrote a lot of great songs together.
3: everybody don't change the channel there's a lot more with holly knight after a few words from our sponsors oh and by the way that clip you just heard that was holly's song change performed by a young fergie on kids incorporated i thought that was awesome okay round two name something that's not boring
0: laundry Ooh, a book club computer solitaire huh oh Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino
3: style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, or we're by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
3: See website for details.
0: We are strong. Ba, 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 ba. No one can tell us we're wrong. Ba, 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 ba. Searching our hearts for solo, low oh, oh, oh. of us knowing love is a battlefield. And
1: now back to the show. During this time period when 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 you're when you're writing these songs you don't typically typically the songwriter doesn't go in the studio with the artist. You give you give the song to them. Was there any songs you ever wrote that you felt were hits and or you loved how it was in the demo, but the artist cut it and it just they just blew it. The sounds were bad, the performance was bad, it just didn't live up to your expectations.
2: Well, you know, yes. Absolutely. Not that often, but one of those times was Love is a battlefield, ironically. Really? Yeah. We did a demo that was very epic. It was like meat and potatoes. And it was like something that would have been in Game of Thrones. You know, it was, They go around saying it was a ballad when they got it, but it wasn't a ballad. It was a mid-tempo song. It had, like my style is very often been mid-tempo eighth note. Like, right? So that's not a ballad. But we gave it to them, and... You know, it was kind of, I never really discussed it with Chapman, but it must have been frustrating for him because here was a man that was producing one hit after another, number one hits. You know, whether it was Blondie, like Heart of Glass, or, or, you know, Rapture, or it was um, Nick Gilder, Hot Child in City, or My Shorty. He was like an amazing producer. And to hand this over to someone else who was the guitarist at the time, the band, he actually introduced him to Pat. As her guitarist. And he was on involved on the first record, uh, that Pat did. So that's where the connection was. What they sent back was a dance track and <laughs> we hated it. We fuck we were like, What the fuck did they just do? And there were all these bells and whistles on it. I mean, she was magnificent. She how could she be otherwise? So Yeah, you know, it took us a while to digest. I mean obviously as the years went on, we learned to love it as it went up the charts and became an evergreen and a huge song. I mean, it's very much an 80s song that, you know, went to number five and it's one of my biggest songs. But personally, I think it would have gone number one had, him, had Mike produced it.
1: Interesting. You know,
2: and the irony is, is that Neil has gone around publicly and made stupid comments like, you know, we changed the song so much. We made it better. We were practically writers on it. And I find that really insulting, you know.
1: Well, because the initial idea—if uh, they never would have been presented with the initial idea—they wouldn't have had it. And she's speaking of Neil Giraldo, which is Pat Benatar's husband, who's played on all of Pat's records, uh, who is now credited and as produced playing, and, and produced. Correct. He also played a uh, lead guitar on on Jesse's Girl by by Rick Springfield, among among other stuff. And changed. I, uh, yeah, yeah, and which I love. Changed.
2: He actually did a great job producing that. I have to say, like he—I think he actually made that song. Uh, much, much more palatable for 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 John
0: White. Well,
2: that
1: song's amazing. You know, typically Holly. Oh, he's a
2: great guitarist. Typically, yeah.
1: I go I go through and talk about this instrument that came and the song came out, but you weren't there for that. But I do want to go through the lyrics and I kind of want to talk about about the arrangement uh, and see. I, I I know that the song became more of a a '80s pop dance song than what you orig- originally had in mind, but I kind of want to go through and see if stylistically. Uh, or excuse me, arrangement-wise if the song was the same. And it, it starts out basically with the chorus, you know, it's it's uh, the drums, there's a really killer bass group and a synth part that comes in. And uh, we are young, heartache to heartache, and, and there's some spoken word stuff that Pat's doing here before the uh-huh. song actually kicks in with the chorus. Did the song start like that when when you and Mike had written it?
2: No. No, it didn't. It it had the intro, uh, which was the chorus. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And and then we sung the chorus, which is sort of an unusual thing to to do. Yeah. Um, Funny, a lot of A&R people hate when you start with the chorus because they feel like, well, then where are you going to go from there? But we felt like, we just felt like, you know, let's just hit him with the the hook right away. It just felt natural, you know, and then it went into the verse. So it was actually, it took a good amount of time before it got from the uh, chorus to the verse. But we didn't care. We just—it just seemed to work for us, you know.
1: Right. And were these lyrics something that you had or Mike had to the side, or did you write them specifically together for this song?
2: We specifically wrote every every single bit of it for Pat. I had had some chords that I had been sort of holding on to this chord sequence, knowing I was going to get together with him. And I want—I I always showed up with something because there's nothing worse than. It's just showing up and twiddling your thumbs because lightning isn't striking at that particular moment you know with with mike and and, and i we jammed a lot you know it was almost like doing a live gig when, when we were writing we would play so loud and we would just jam um but after she called i said to him hey i've got this progression do you want to hear it and i and i played him pretty much the the chorus and, and and the chords we had all of that we just didn't have the verse yet and we were jamming on it, and it was, we thought, like, you know, this is a chorus. And, and then Mike said, we really, really need to hit this out of the park. This is so catchy, this musical part that you, you, you've got. We need to come up with a title that is somewhat fucked up, because uh-huh. that'll make it, like, compelling, you know, instead of, like, your typical sort of title you've heard a million times with a few little tweaks in it. And he goes, and he starts pacing around the room like an, like an animal and he's, he's like talking to himself and he goes, you know, something, and then he stops and he goes, well, something, not this, but something like this. And, he, and I, I said, like, what? And he goes, I don't know. I was like, you know, love is a battlefield. And he literally like <laughs> regurgitated the words out of his mouth. And I think he was just sort of giving me example. And I said, well, that's it. That's perfect. And he looked at me. He goes, you think so? I said, Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it means. He goes, That's okay. We'll we'll figure it out as we write it. And that's what you do. Yeah. You figure out everything as you write it.
1: I love the title. I want to talk about these lyrics, and I'll have you set them up. Basically, that has the intro of the song, and then chorus one hits. We are strong. No one can tell us we're wrong. Searching our hearts for so long, both of us knowing love is a battlefield. And who can't relate to that though? Well, you know, <laughs> love being a battlefield. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's good, it's bad, it's ugly and everything everything in between. So basically what do you, what are you saying there?
2: Well, pretty much what you said. I mean, when they didn't went to do the video, it was more about her running away from home and having a battlefield of love with her family, which um I related to that too because I when I saw the video I thought that that made sense as well. I mean it can be whatever you want it to be everybody. It's open for interpretation and I don't really like to sit there and dissect the lyrics cuz it kind of dis- demystifies it but I will tell you that there was a certain rhythm to it. Da 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 da. So that's why I said we had this one line that was missing. It took us a week to get the one line in the chorus. What is the line? No promises, no demands. Okay. Cuz it was that 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 that. It wasn't a complete sentence as much as it was almost like a slogan. Like you can almost see that in a commercial now for a car, you know, promises, no demands.
1: Which is interesting cuz you get that lyric at the top intro but the first chorus it doesn't come in. That it comes in on the second chorus, uh which they which which is which is switched there. And do you recall was the chorus ever switched on your demo? Because here on chorus one, it starts, we are strong, no one can tell us we're wrong. On chorus two is, we are young, heartache to heartache, we stand.
2: That's the actual chorus. I mean, the first part was sort of like, she sort of came in the middle of it. We are strong is not the chorus, that's the middle of the chorus. We are young, heartache to heartache, we stand. That's the same rhythm as no promises, no demands, see? So, and we wanted a lot of air because like, you know, when you're trying to write anthems, well, first of all, I don't know if anybody realizes this, and nobody told me this, but i it, it came to me once, the beauty of it, and that is when you're doing arena rock, when you're so big that you're playing in an arena, you need to have those kind of rhythms that have air in between instead of long sentences, because as you know, it echoes, the kick drum, it's like being in a church with a pipe organ. By the time you get to the end of the theater, it, there's a second or two delay, so you need to have that space in between. so they the words don't run into each other. So those dot, 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 that's like you look at, that's when you look at like anthems like, we will, we will rock you. See all the airing, it's not these long sort of, and and Battlefield had that, you know? It it lost a bit of that when it became a dance track.
1: Well, I wanna talk about these verses. one you're begging me to go then making me stay why do you hurt me so bad it would help me to know do i stand in your way or am i the best thing you've had believe me believe me i can't tell you why but i'm trapped by your love and i'm chained to your side and was the lyrics that ended up on the record was that all uh from from your demo nothing was changed
2: Yes, nothing
1: and how did that work when you and Mike were going back and forth? Would, would you come up with a line and then maybe, you, you know, he, he'd take a walk outside. you would come back in and say, hey, I got this idea for this line.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's very much sort of like this thing, you know, someone will throw out, believe me. And, I'll, you know, I might say like, well, how, why don't we do that twice? Believe me. Believe me. I can't tell you. I can't tell you what. I don't know what. No, why? How about, how, I can't, believe me, believe me, I can't, t- you know, that kind of stuff goes on. At least with Mike and I, it did on that song. There have been other songs, like where we wrote a song and then he would go off and sort of come back with the verse that he had written. I was, you know, in the beginning, I would say, because I was more sort of classically trained, I think he respected that. I had the bass lines. He always loved my bass lines. I always started with, I'm really into bass. Because I think if you have a bass and a melody, you've got all the elements of a song. Mm-hmm. Some people would think it's the, like a guitar and, and a melody, but I actually think it's the bass because the bass really kind of defines... Um, if you want it to go somewhere different, you can still sing the vocal with it and get the whole thing.
1: Was this bass line that made it on her record, was that uh, on your demo? Because I, lo- I think the bass oh, yeah. line's amazing in this song. It's so funky. It's a little song within the song.
2: Yeah, it was actually... Um, it was like... Like theirs was tw- like more bo diddly like bum 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 Ours was more like half time like da da bum 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 bum. But that bass line was like that was what I brought to Mike um when I first had the idea.
1: Ah, uh, it's so good. Chorus two happens, which is the double chorus, and then there's that eight bar uh instrumental again, just like before that, that happens. We are-
2: It's a holding place. I call those refrains.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I love the arrangement. This song's five minutes and twenty-three seconds. It's a long song. It's
2: crazy. We even had the whistling on it and I've I've gotten into a debate with Neil because he thinks that he came up with that. But, but Mike was whistling on uh he was actually whistling on the beginning of the song. Like it started out, he had the uh he had the drums playing first, like boom boom, pa, boom boom bah. and then he started whistling. <laughs> and then came in with like that, you know.
1: Well, I was gonna ask who whistled that part.
2: <laughs> that was him.
1: Oh, okay. I think okay. he was just
2: fucking around. Love is he did it deliberately now like what 40 years later but
1: right <laughs> yes. um, verse two When I'm losing control, will you turn me away or touch me deep inside? And when all this gets old, will it still feel the same? There's no way this will die. But if we get much closer, I could lose control. And if your heart surrenders, you'll need me to hold. Was verse two ever verse one? Do they ever interchange or was that always the same?
2: No, that was the same.
1: It was the same? Okay. Yep. And then we get into uh, chorus three, double chorus again. And then there's thirty two bars of instrumental that's where the real long (laughs) the long piece comes here at the end of the song before before the double chorus uh at the end and from your demo okay was your demo about five and a half minutes or or did they add more did they did they cut it down do you recall
2: i don't remember that i know that we had an instrumental section there but you know mike wasn't a lead guitarist so i think you know that's where Neil sort of put in that solo, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da You know, I I think if you can play a song to someone and if you have a part and you take it out and you ask the question, is this song still the song? Is it intact? Then you can tell that someone's either rewritten the song or just added to it. And you could take that section out and Love is a Battlefield is, it's all there, you know?
1: It is, it is. So I
2: think that's more like a production thing or, you know, even changing the tempo and the... uh, you know, the feel, that's all production. That's not writing the song.
1: Right, and and I'm glad you made that distinction, because it is, and, and that that's bring, brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you. I was really surprised to hear you say that you, you hated it when you heard it. Did, was was Mike was Mike not into it either initially when he got it back?
2: Oh, he hated it.
1: He hated it. Okay. We were so, like, what? <laughs> so was it surprising that all of a sudden you're seeing it climb up the charts and it's doing this and you're like, what's going on? Because No,
2: because we know a hit song is a hit song. We knew it was going to be a hit and we knew it was going to do well. I mean, look, it had Pat Benatar singing on it and she's phenomenal.
1: Right. She's right. still
2: one of my favorite singers and you know, she delivered it. And my my problem wasn't at all with her. It was just the the, the track that embodied it. I really felt like it was a number one song. Right. And I, and, and I think had it been a little bit, it just seemed like there was so much going on. And like I said, I like to keep things a little bit more, you know, simple. And that brings me to something that is is, is a really important thing to, to mention that you know, when I write, I, I put on my writing hat and I think like a songwriter, which is very different than when I think of myself as a musician. Hmm. You know, if a guitarist comes in and they write a song, they're, they very often are focused on like the, oh, here's this, what do you think of this guitar part, you know? And, and, and it's like they're two very different things. Um, I think that being a musician, because I'm both, it's more ego driven because that's all you really have going. So, unless you're a great songwriter. You know, you want to shine, and I understand that. You know, you want to solo, you want to... I mean, I've just worked with a group right now, and it's all women, and they're phenomenal. I mean, this hasn't never been done before. Um, the group is called We Are Equal, and and they're beautiful too. But, you know, I had Chris Lord-Alge do some phenomenal mixes, and they were kind of taken aback, like, well, there's not enough guitar, or there's not enough me, or there's not the basses, and I was like... And I said, again, you know, people walk out of the arena, singing the melody. They're not singing the drum parts. It's like you need to get over that and be part of a team and do what's best for the song and what serves the song. Don't you want to have a hit? Mm-hmm. You want to get on the cover of Rolling Stones? You ain't doing it unless you have a massive following live, which doesn't happen that quickly anymore, especially with a pandemic, or it goes viral because of the content and nature of the song. And that's the difference. That's when I made that switch over to the song was more important, that's when I really knew. I'm really glad you
1: brought that up because as a musician, I've had that told to me and I didn't like to hear it.
0: Of course, because we're narcissists. <laughs> I'm one too. I, I didn't I like, I didn't like
1: to. I didn't like to hear that you didn't like my guitar part the bridge. Like I want to hear the melody. That's what sells the song. And you know what? When you strip it back and you're talking about songwriting, it's it, it's so true. I mean, that other stuff is important at times, but what you're speaking of the the brass the brass tacks.
2: Yeah, and I'll tell you when it's important for the musician to shine. And and I'm not saying this like us against him, because I am both very much both is when you go out and you play live and you stretch out that's your time to shine and show everybody that you're the real article it wasn't in the studio or or whatever and of course you want to shine on the record too but at the end of the day you're not the most important thing the song is and the singer is like it or not turn your fucking guitar down shut up (laughs)
1: love it (laughs) so before (laughs) before we wrap up here i gotta got a couple of things if you could pick one What's the song you're most proud of that, not not that you just, that you wrote, but how it was recorded, how it came out, top to bottom, start to finish, if you could pick one?
2: I'd probably have to say the best. Really? Well, yeah, not so much the song itself. I mean, I have other songs that are favorite songs for, for just different reasons, mm-hmm. um, but when I look at the trajectory of how that song has reached out to so many people, it's been covered so many times, it was made a huge hit by Tina Turner, who I love. Yeah, I mean, it's been re- revisited, whether it was her HBO documentary, or it was the movies, you know, well, it wasn't in the first movie, but um, it's in the, the musical that's out now. And speaking of liner notes, you know, like how we miss him, the her record company, Warner Brothers, uh, that put out this box set of Foreign Affair in, last summer, they asked me to write some liner notes, and I thought, okay, cool. This will be great. I can talk about some things I've never gotten to talk about. And I said, how many words do you want? I thought they'd say like 200 or something. They said 2,000. So it's like, oh, okay, cool. So um, I got to do that and talk, you know. I, I've got a book actually coming out probably in the fall, my memoirs.
1: Oh, cool. I'd love to read it.
2: Yeah, it's pretty racy and edgy. It's, it's really kind of focused. It's centric on that that. 80s period when mtv started and when it started to you know die down at the end and the last yeah. song i wrote in a decade was the best so you know it has a lot of um you know nostalgia for me and stuff you know that's great um, but if you were to say musically what my favorite song was i'd probably say invincible
1: okay that's a great great track love it well one one last thing for before, before we uh, before we go have you written your best song yet
2: I, you know, that's a hard thing to answer. I wrote a song a couple of years ago, which was very autobiographical. I actually wrote it in the style of theater for music, for a musical that I want to do. And I think that was one of my best songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, have I written my, I probably, if I, the minute I start to think that I might as well stop writing. So (laughs) I have to believe that I'm going to keep, you know,
1: that's what I've always said. I've always said my, my next song could be the, could be the best one and that's what, that's what keeps me, uh, keeps me chasing it. It just keep, keeps the, keeps the fire and the passion alive.
2: Yeah, exactly because you know the minute you think that, you just like you might as well call it a day and I'm far from far from calling it a day.
1: That's awesome. Well, anything you like to leave the listeners, but before we wrap here, I know you said you got you got your book coming out. Uh, any, any other project you like to talk about?
2: Well, like I said, I've got this exciting new band um, that I. It's sort of a collective, actually, which it's going to always be women in the group. Just 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 because I want people to know that there are some amazing musicians out there, and the songs are great because I wrote them. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you know, if they're gonna. I, I've encouraged them to bring in songs too. It's not like it's got to be the Halloween Night Show, but I'm I'm very proud of that. And uh, you know, I just keep on writing and stuff. I don't have to, so when I do do it, it's really because my heart's in it. Sort of like it was when I first started out.
1: Well, uh, we'll have to we we'll have to write another one together. And I want to hear what you have in the vault.
2: Oh, I do want to say, I do want to say that I love that song we wrote overrated. I think it's a great song. It's one of my favorite, really. I love
1: it. Well, thank you very much. It's it's one of those songs that uh, has kind of stood the test of time for the band. We find ourselves uh, more often than not playing it when we go out on the road. It just, it has that jumping vibe where it just, it, it's bouncy. It's, yeah. it's it's what you're talking about with those bass lines. It has that Holly bass. Uh, <laughs> <the, laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's that half note you're talking about. Exactly. Right?
2: Yep, on that. the refrain.
1: That's it. Yep. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much for for sitting in with us today. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And, um, yeah, let's write again.
3: There's lots more Krista Makes a Podcast after a few words from our sponsors.
1: Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons.
3: Think behind the music for the stuff we love.
0: Check out our website at two 2DesignersWalkintoabar.com.
3: And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit
1: evergreenpodcasts.com. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Bakes a podcast, all you have to do is submit your song via mp 3 only. And bio to ban you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is the Poly Orchids, a melodic punk band from Northern California. You can find their music on all the streaming services. And here's a snippet of their song 45.
0: The Rap with Chris and Chris. All
3: right, so let me start by saying that Holly is awesome and she's written so many incredible songs as you covered in this episode. But this was a really different episode and I didn't know how this was going to work because usually you can talk about the recorded version of the song, but in this instance, her and Mike Chapman wrote the song, but they weren't really involved in the actual recording of the song that we all know.
1: Yeah, they handed off their baby to another family to raise. And surprisingly, <laughs> when they saw the child a couple years later, they didn't like it. Um, I know that was amazing. <laughs> I mean, here this song shot through the stratosphere for Pat Benatar, her, arguably her biggest hit up to that point. Uh, the whole thing just, it, it was crazy to hear that they didn't like what they did to their song. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear that
3: perspective from Holly. Because you or I, if we wrote a song and it went to number five in the charts, I think that we would just automatically like it, <laughs> you know? But she, in in her opinion, and she might she might be right, thinks that if it was done, properly or to her liking, that should have been a number one song, not a number five song, which I thought was was really... I don't know. That was an awesome way to look at it. I it think. is to
1: believe in your song that. Yeah. Much. Well, awesome. of course, you know, you'll, you'll never be able to go back and, and rewrite history and know if that was true or not, whether it would have become a number one, but she did say that, uh, that, that, that her stance has softened. I don't know if Mike's has over the years, but you know, I think that, uh, that, that she's gotten used to it and has accepted it for what it is. And I think when she walks into that restaurant or that mall and hears it play and she can kind of have that, that prideful moment, you know, I love that you
3: asked her if she wants to sc- Scream, that's my song when, <laughs> when, when her song comes on somewhere or, you know, whatever. Well, she did say that she wants to scream, Hey, that's my song. Although she, you know, doesn't actually do that. Maybe a time or two she has. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Well, and what would you well, do?
1: I feel like I would tell everybody around me that's it, me. It would be tough. It would be tough not to. And you know, some of these songwriters, they might have played in bands, uh, you know, but uh, you know, some of them are just strictly songwriters. She was on both sides of the spectrum. She even said that she misses performing. That's part of her. But you know, I, I liked when she kind of gave the example of there's musicians and there's songwriters, and you have to separate it. And there, there there's some truth in that to what 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 she was saying. You know. And she was talking about just the meat and the bones of the song. And if you look for publishing, I don't know if a lot of listeners know this, but you know, you have lyrics and you have the music to a song. And you know, a band like Less Than Jake, we, we've cut in our, our, our horn players uh, on certain publishing things if we felt that that really elevated or lifted the song. But you don't have to on paper do that. It's chords and melody and lyrics. That's it.
3: Well, speaking of that, Chris, I thought it was really interesting. And Holly might be the first person I've ever heard say this, but Holly believes that a song, the true elements of the song,
1: are the bass line and the melody. And you know I love that. Well, yeah. Being a bass player, you gotta, you gotta love that. And and, she, and she's so right in this song. And that's why I asked her specifically if the bass line that she had come up with with Mike on the demo, if it translated. She said it was a little different, but for the most part, because the bass line's wicked in this song. It is just so good. It's, it's like Billie Jean, Michael Jackson. We've talked about it on this show before. Those songs that if you just zone in on the bass part, it's a song within a song. It stands on its own. I love that.
3: I really, really love that. And yeah, man, the baseline, a baseline is so important in a song. I, I know I'm biased, but I would argue that maybe the baseline is more important than the chords or at least equally important, you know? But uh, yeah, I thought it was also cool that she talked about the most important thing at the end of the day, as a lot of people like to say, that expression is to write lyrics that you're proud of and To make sure that they're not later cringeworthy, which I don't know. You can't always in the moment know if five, 10, 15 years down the road, you're going to cringe reading what you're writing now. But I think that if you approach it trying to write something that's timeless, I don't know. Can you do that intentionally? Write something timeless? I would imagine probably most of the time, if you are writing something timeless, you don't realize that you are. The only example I can think of of a way to do that is not to write about like, if it was 15 years ago, write about like using your sidekick or some, <laughs> some sort of technology that is of the now. Don't do that. But uh, yeah, I, I like that she talked about uh, writing lyrics that you're proud of.
1: Yeah, and you know, the music business is, is very uh, male-dominated. You know, when she started out in this business, that was 40 years ago, even more so back then. She touched on that a little bit, what it was like being a woman trying to break in the ranks of a songwriter. And uh, I felt early on that her material was so good that that she was embraced, she was included by these other male songwriters because it was undeniable. Just look at the track record of some of these songs. I mean, I could have mm-hmm. I could have probably talked to her for 3 or 4 hours, you know, I, I, I talk about Obsession by Anna Motion, talk about The Best some more, talk about Rag by Aerosmith, The Warrior by Scandal. I mean, th- think of the stories behind those songs, but I went with I went with Love as a Battlefield just uh, Uh, mostly because of memories. I love Pat Benatar, and I have a lot of memories attached to to that song, and uh, I thought thought it'd be a good one to go to, but you're right. It was a little difficult, a little different episode for us, because songwriters, uh, they passed that song off. They're not there for the recording, Uh, and again, I'm still kind of flabbergasted she didn't like what came out.
3: Well, dude, it almost makes sense to me now that I'm thinking about it more, because She has written a bunch of timeless songs. We're talking about The Best, a song that has been recently used on Schitt's Creek. It was used in Joe Biden's inauguration. All these things, it is still used in contemporary things. The Warrior, it was used as the theme song for the show Glow, which was a popular show from the past couple years. These songs are timeless. Love is a Battlefield, I will say, the presentation of that song is pretty 80s. You know, to you and I, that song, is
1: pretty timeless, but compared to some of these other ones, compared to the best. Yeah, and you, you can't uh, argue with a lyric. You're simply the best, better than all the rest. I mean, uh, that's timeless. You, you know that that right, phrase, right, right, right. those words put together. Uh, who can't relate to that? And it, it, it's a, it's a rallying it's a rallying cry. It's a a very very positive lyric. And to your point, I don't think you can set out and say I'm going to write something timeless. I think it just becomes timeless.
3: And I thought it was really cool that she talked about needing to have space in between uh, lyrics when you're an arena rock band yeah. because of I guess because of like the echo and the time it takes sound to travel and stuff. Never thought about that
1: before. Uh, that was uh, Bob Rock's argument to Metallica when he made the Black Black album. You know, Sad But True was, was a faster song before he got in there. And he said, you guys are playing arenas now. You're playing these breakneck speed songs, bass and snare. It's just bouncing all over. You want something with space. You know, and Sad But True is this slow, sludgy song, which would just sound great at 110 dB in an, in an arena, you know.
3: Right, right. And Holly definitely didn't pull any punches, even when talking about songwriting in general and how maybe guitarists, I don't know any guitarists who would be like this, Chris, but but saying basically, uh, turn your fucking guitar down and shut up because, (laughs) you know, if you want to hit song, it's the vocals that have to be featured. People have to hear the lyrics. That's the, the main part. And, you know, sometimes us guys who aren't the main vocalists, like, You know, I don't know anybody here who might be (laughs) me me, talking about myself. (laughs) You don't want to hear that always. And maybe a guitarist doesn't want to hear that. But uh, I think that Holly
1: has a lot of wisdom to pass along here case in point Ingve malmstein's known for his shredding guitar playing but not so much for his uh, great hit songs you know it's just yeah just <laughs> just 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 the way it is but uh you know what else is great chris what's that i'll tell you what's great it's when our listeners whom we love dearly leave us those five-star reviews that was a breakneck transition <laughs> i really i really appreciated that uh, from Ingve from yeah, yeah. malmstein to the fans thank you thank you yeah for sure for sure hey yeah
3: if you like our podcast Wherever you listen to it, if it's an option to leave a review... Like a five star one of those please leave us one because it helps up the profile of our podcast and helps us get more
1: great guests. That's right we're a broken record. We say this every week but we're just driving the point home we we, we want you to uh, leave us those reviews so we can get the guests that you love and enjoy and so we can keep keep doing this podcast forever in the future. If you haven't already, please join the Krista makes a podcast Facebook group. It's a lot of fun and if you haven't already, give me a follow on Instagram at less than Christy want to thank this week's guest Holly Knight for sitting with us In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at
0: LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.